Welcome back from the break. Um, so this really starts the pure COVID-19 part of our program. Um, and I first want to uh, introduce to you um, the first talk. Uh, and uh, we're very excited to have our co-chair, um, Dr. Chip Shuli, speak about uh, COVID-19 therapeutics and vaccination. Just to introduce him, he is a professor of medicine at UCSD and also chief of the Division of Infectious Disease there. After being chief of the Infectious Disease Division at University of Colorado before that, and before that being the ID Fellowship Program Director at Mass General at Harvard. He is the Academic Vice Chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSD. He's the Associate Director of the CIFAR there. He is the editor of our really one of our most important journal in infectious diseases, uh, clinical infectious diseases. He has over 170 peer-reviewed publications, and like many, he has turned a lot of attention to SARS-CoV-2 during this pandemic, and he will speak to us um, and talk to us about the therapeutics and vaccination potentials for COVID-19. Hello, I'm Chip Schooley from the University of California, San Diego, and I'm delighted to be here today to talk with you about prospects for vaccine and therapeutic development directed at SARS coronavirus 2. My disclosures are shown for you here on this slide. Let's first talk about uh, SARS coronavirus therapeutics. We're barely six months into this disease. We're already beginning to see therapeutics that we can take to our patients. Before we get into the specifics of this, let's talk about the pathogenesis of the disease because I think it's important to understand the drivers of the disease process to think about how one might want to intervene. We know that there is an incubation period of 2 to 14 days after initial exposure and that people come to clinical attention and those who have symptoms uh, presenting as either uh, in a whole spectrum of, of uh, disease severities from mild to critical illness. Those with mild disease tend to get better over a period of four to 10 days, uh, usually uh, avoiding hospitalization, uh, often just being able to shelter in place at home. Some of those people will go on to more severe disease and death. But as you can see, as one goes further and further into the uh, severity scale at presentation, a larger and larger fraction of people will go on to develop respiratory symptoms and death. The first part of the disease process we think is driven uh, by viral replication. And as the disease progresses uh, in some people, this viral progression triggers, uh, viral um, replication triggers a cytokine cascade that leads to an increasingly intense inflammatory response that leads to respiratory failure uh, and in some patients, death. Let's start now and talk a bit about what determines how people go down uh, one uh, disease course or the other. Uh, we know that uh, this virus is one that is most likely to cause morbidity in people with comorbid conditions that have been defined for other coronaviruses as well. Uh, age, uh, by that I mean people over the age of 50 to 55, cardiovascular disease, especially uh, hypertension, uh, pulmonary disease, COPD, asthma, for example, uh, renal dysfunction, liver disease, obesity, and other conditions that we accumulate as we get older. There's also uh, increasingly good evidence that the inoculum size plays a role in determining how likely one is to have symptoms, and if one does have symptoms, uh, how likely one is to have severe symptoms that progress to morbidity uh, requiring hospital admission. And there are emerging data that there may be differences in viral strains and host immunogenetics that also uh, affect disease pathogenesis. 
Now let's bore down and look a little more closely at um, cellular aspects of viral pathogenesis. These are some very interesting data from uh, KYUN from Hong Kong University that demonstrate some of the features of this virus that account for uh, its um, uh, extreme um, transmissibility. In this experiment, what KY did was to take uh, lung tissue from people who were undergoing surgery for lung cancer, normal lung tissue adjacent to the tumor, and infect that tissue uh, with either um, the original SARS coronavirus shown for you here in blue, or the current SARS coronavirus shown here in red. And as you can see, as time goes on compared to the gray control, the SARS coronavirus 2 um, uh, does not induce the uh, interferons uh, uh, that uh, are uh, measured in this uh, tissue culture exper uh, experiment, whereas over time, more and more of the tissue explants uh, uh, generate interferon lambda 2, lambda 3, and other interferons I'm not showing here for you today. This key feature uh, is important from two perspectives. The first is that it allows the virus to grow to high levels very quickly because it is not opposed by the native immune response. Coronaviruses are exquisitely sensitive to interferon if their interferons are present. This coronavirus prevents their uh, production. So you've got a lot of coronavirus, and because you don't have an, a native immune response turned on, uh, you're asymptomatic, and this allows the virus to circulate in people shedding high levels of virus uh, at a time when they aren't showing symptoms. In fact, uh, when people present uh, with um, uh, pulmonary uh, findings on chest x-ray or even clinically, uh, they've usually been shedding virus at high titers for two to three days, uh, which is why in this particular epidemic, isolating those with symptoms has not been sufficient to stop spread of the virus uh, in the general population. Now, looking at the uh, pathogenesis a slightly different way at the cellular level, you can see that the virus binds to primarily the uh, acetyl acetylcholine receptor 2, ACE2 receptors. These uh, molecules are present primarily in the lung and in the GI tract, which is where this virus preferentially replicates. Once inside the cell, the virus uh, itself replicates uh, and begins to, uh, the cell begins to um, elicit signals uh, calling in an immune response. In a healthy situation, one ultimately begins to see innate immunity kicking in uh, and this in the uh, in patients who do well, uh, then uh, move seamlessly into an adaptive immune response with the production of virus-specific specific, uh, neutralizing antibodies, uh, cytotoxic T cells, and other immune effector cells that clear up the virus and lead to the recovery of the host. In some patients, however, a cytokine storm is elicited. Uh, I've already told you the patient characteristics. We don't understand all of the reasons that people go down this pathway, and indeed some people who don't have discernible epidemiologic risk factors still go down this pathway, but they develop what has been termed a cytokine storm with high levels of particularly interleukin-6, IP10, all these pro-inflammatory cytokines that lead to disruption of cell-cell barriers, uh, pulmonary leakage, and progression uh, to respiratory failure. This, logically, you, you might think that the way to treat the vir this uh, disease uh, is to uh, try to both interrupt viral replication and should patients progress to this, um, this uh, cytokine storm scenario, try to um, arrest ongoing uh, infl inflammation with immune modulatory therapy. And that, indeed, 
uh, has been the approach that has been taken over the course of the last several months as clinical trials and clinical experiences have been accumulated. So today I'm not going to try to talk about all of the agents that have been proposed for uh, treating um, SARS coronavirus 2. Uh, I'll start with the um, antiviral side of the equation. Uh, and today um, we won't talk about hydroxychloroquine for sure. Uh, it's now been shown to have uh, very little, if any, discernible benefit and significant toxicity in certain patients. So it's no longer recommended for treatment of this disease. Um, well, I'm not going to talk in great detail about neutralizing monoclonal antibodies or convalescent plasma. Clinical trials are in progress with both. But from animal model studies, uh, there is every reason to consider um, clinical trials using both of these approaches. They've both been shown to reduce viral load and reduce morbidity in animal models of SARS coronavirus 2. I'll talk today primarily about remdesivir because remdesivir is the uh, therapeutic that has progressed farthest uh, down the line. Uh, th uh, remdesivir is an, another uh, 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 polymerase inhibitor, this time a uh, an RNA polymerase inhibitor that goes after the virus as it begins to, uh, to uh, copy its RNA for progeny variants within the cell. Uh, chains of RNA are terminated. Uh, and virus production is is inhibited. Uh, the virus, this drug is a, a broad, relatively broadly acting uh, RNA polymerase inhibitor. Uh, it has an EC50 um, of um, about a little bit less than one micromolar uh, against SARS coronavirus 2 um, in viral cells. And more importantly, it has broad uh, activity against Ebola virus, Marburg virus. Um, MERS coronavirus that we saw in the Middle East a number of years ago, and also against Nipah and Hendra viruses. The activity of, the, of this drug, however, is somewhat marginal from the standpoint of, of um, uh, how levels of um, activity above maximally achievable plasma levels, uh, which is one of the reasons that uh, uh, it may not have worked as well in Ebola as monoclonal antibodies did. Uh, there have been, it has been shown to have activity though in uh, uh, mouse and primate models against uh, both the original SARS coronavirus and the SARS coronavirus 2. Uh, and in these models, it reduces virus in lungs, uh, it reduces the amount of lung pathology, and it also uh, improves clinical uh, signs of uh, pulmonary dysfunction. The safety profile uh, in Ebola, where it was used extensively in uh, the Congo recently, was relatively favorable. Uh, the dose-limiting toxicity is a powder toxicity uh, that uh, shows as uh, generally reversible elevations in ALT and AST. Uh, and um, as with many of the nucleosides and nucleotides that we work with um, in the context of HIV therapy, uh, as the uh, drug is taken into the cells and phosphorylated, the triphosphate metabolites persist for prolonged periods of time and allow once daily dosing. Uh, one of the challenges of this particular drug, however, is there's not an oral formulation and it has to be given intravenously. It's excreted by the, in the urine uh, and um, uh, has, um, doesn't have significant drug-drug interactions except with uh, Hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, which, as I said, are no longer uh, useful. These drug interactions are not pharmacologic, but rather antiviral. 
I'll spend most of the time uh, in terms of the remdesivir story talking about the recently published placebo control trial uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that um, um, described the NIID study of remdesivir in a multi-cent format. Uh, this study is part of an adaptive design suite of studies that started as a placebo control trial of remdesivir in which people who were hospitalized with PCR-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, who had to have at least uh, evidence radiographically of infiltrates or uh, required um, supplemental oxygen or mechanical ventilation or had um, room air um, uh, oxygenation of less than 94, 94%. Because of the, of the hepatotoxicity, people with... Uh, uh, ALTs or ASTs greater than five times the upper limit of normal uh, were uh, excluded, and you can see the other exclusions were here as well. The trial enrolled very quickly. Uh, it was conducted at uh, 99 sites, um, most of them in the U.S. Uh, the enrollment period uh, was uh, over a period of about uh, not quite two months, and patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive a loading dose of 200 milligrams of remdesivir, called uh, once daily doses of half that uh, at half that level for 10 days or a placebo uh, given over the same period of time. And randomization was stratified by disease severity at the time of enrollment. Uh, this is important because the way the study was done practically in many of the centers in which it was conducted is that patients were already in the hospital awaiting uh, IRB approval. And when the IRB approved the protocol, Virtually everyone who was eligible for the drug was started, some of them with relatively early disease, and some of them with severe disease, even on ECMO, uh, were entered into the placebo-controlled trial. Now, the way the trial was set up in terms of endpoints uh, was to look at clinical stages of disease on an ordinal scale. Uh, this is not something that we do very often in viral diseases, but it's done not infrequently uh, in pulmonary diseases uh, and uh, particularly in uh, ICU settings. And this ordinal scale is one that is relatively intuitive. Uh, if you go down from one to eight, you can see increasing levels of compromise, starting with uh, patients who are not hospitalized with no limitations of activity and proceeding through various uh, ordinal stages uh, to death at stage eight. The primary endpoint uh, was defined as the um, time to recovery uh, during the first 28 days after the patient began on therapy uh, in which um, a patient uh, reached categories one, two, or three uh, starting from below that line. And there were secondary endpoints with mortality at uh, day 14 and 28 and certainly as usual safety. Uh, the study was um, followed by a data safety monitoring board and enrolled uh, 1,063 of the 1,107 patients screened, uh, and uh, the DSMB recommended uh, stopping further enrollment of the study uh, uh, on April 28th uh, at the time that uh, 1,060 had been randomized, but only 730 had actually completed all 28 days of the trial. Uh, the reason that they uh, recommended uh, stopping the study at that point was that there was a statistically significant benefit to people on remdesivir in terms of the primary endpoint of the study. Um, and you can see in the study uh, that uh, of the 540 people who received remdesivir, 
um, the uh, 98% actually did uh, receive it as assigned, at, but only about 390 of the 500 had completed follow-up through day 29 uh, or had died, which were the endpoints one would need, which meant that uh, one couldn't really analyze all 730 patients, randomized the remdesivir arm, and the same thing was true of on the placebo arm. Only 340 of the 522 could be analyzed from the standpoint of the primary endpoint. Now, at baseline, uh, this was a diverse group. Uh, patients uh, at this stage in the epidemic were older, and the age of, of the, uh, the uh, uh, mean age was 60 in both in both arms. Uh, you can see that, uh, as with uh, most uh, series of um, SARS coronavirus 2, there was a preponderance of men here, about two to one. And these patients have been sick for over a week. Uh, the average time from symptom onset to randomization was nine days in both arms. And over half of them had at least two comorbid conditions. So these were sick patients who'd been sick for a relatively long period of time when they were randomized. Uh, and you can see that uh, when you start looking at where they were on the ordinal scale, remember four through eight uh, were the um, more severe ordinal scales. You can see that um, the 40% um, were receiving supplemental oxygen. 20% roughly were uh, receiving, were already uh, either receiving high-flow oxygen uh, and another 20% were intubated. The primary outcome is shown for you here, and you can see that uh, there was a shorter median time to recovery uh, in the remdesivir group, uh, 11 days versus 15 days, uh, with a rate ratio of, um, of 1.32 with a um, confidence interval of 1.13 to 1.55. Um, and the um, uh, outcomes were similar uh, uh, regardless of whether you had been randomized uh, earlier or later than 10 days after disease onset. And you can see here uh, the number of people at each stage in the disease um, uh, after randomization at the time the study was stopped for analysis. Now let's go on to talk about some of the uh, um, subgroup analyses in the study to give some more insights into questions about when um, remdesivir had its uh, most beneficial effect. If one begins to look at patients who enter the study at different stages uh, in the ordinal scale, um, we can see differences along uh, a couple of different uh, axes. First of all, patients who entered uh, with an ordinal scale of a score of four, and these are people who were in the hospital but not requiring oxygen, you can see they did very well, uh, whether they received remdesivir or not. The uh, recovery rate was close to 100% in those receiving remdesivir, and not much worse with placebo, uh, with a significant overlap between the two, although the number of patients uh, out here uh, at, toward the end of this uh, interval was relatively small. Patients who were in the hospital and receiving oxygen, ordinal scale 5 at the time, uh, had a uh, recovery rate that was not quite as good as those who weren't on oxygen, but you can see an easier display between those on remdesivir and placebo, uh, a, a recovery rate of um, in the 85% range uh, compared to about 75% with placebo. As one goes further down the scale, though, of illness, you can see that patients who entered the uh, study on high-flow oxygen or those who were ventilated or on ECMO did less well with recovery rates closer to 50%, and there was very little evidence of benefit uh, from remdesivir uh, in patients uh, in, uh, with more severe disease, much less benefit. Uh, if one looks at the mortality rate, some of the secondary endpoints, um, 
the overall mortality rate of benefit in the remdesivir arm uh, was a uh, relative rate of 0.7, but the uh, upper limit of the confidence interval overlapped one. So the uh, trial didn't formally reach a mortality rate uh, uh, ratio uh, with a 0.05 level of significance. Uh, if one looks at the uh, mortality rate differential as a stage of disease, uh, you can see that patients uh, who were most likely to benefit were those who were in the hospital level five uh, ordinal, on the ordinal scale on oxygen. You can see here there was a um, the mortality rate benefit was about 78 percent compared to those uh, who uh, were more severe in which the, there was no mortality rate uh, benefit seen. So again, uh, as we do more studies with remdesivir and have more experience, I think we'll learn more about when in the disease process uh, patients are most likely to benefit. Looking at subgroup outcomes from the standpoint of how ill people were uh, and what their stage was at the time of disease, uh, what you can see is that um, compared to all patients with a recovery ratio uh, that I've already uh, defined, you can see that younger patients uh, did particularly well uh, on remdesivir. Uh, patients who had uh, more or less than 10 days of uh, illness, as you can see, there was no difference in how they did. Uh, the uh, patients receiving supplemental oxygen uh, at the time of entry did particularly well. Safety outcomes, uh, there were fewer adverse events in those receiving remdesivir than placebo primarily uh, because um, in the subgroup of people who did clinically better on remdesivir, the uh, adverse events that were being recorded were mainly those of the underlying disease. Uh, and the same thing was true uh, with grade three or four adverse events. Uh, and there were no deaths attributed to study medications. Um, the, um, so from the standpoint of remdesivir-associated um, uh, uh, Findings, uh, these patients receiving remdesivir had a significantly shorter time to recovery compared to placebo, and it was the same regardless uh, of duration of symptoms. The mortality rate was um, lower, but not quite statistically significant, uh, but the trend was clear in the study. There were a number of things that have come up after this that I think bear discussion. Uh, there was a controversy about whether the endpoints had been changed uh, after the study started. Uh, and in fact, they were. The primary endpoint uh, was to have been uh, recovery by day 15. But as the study was getting started and enrolling, uh, more data were coming out of China about the tempo of recovery in patients with this disease. And it became clear that one really needed to follow patients for up to 28 days to understand where they would end up. And so the primary endpoint was shifted from a recovery at 15 days to recovery at 28 days. Uh, but this was done before any data were looked at uh, only uh, after only 72 patients had been enrolled. And when one looked back at the primary outcome that was originally planned, the key secondary outcome uh, now in the study, uh, at day 15, there was an even better outcome on remdesivir compared to placebo. So although this has been uh, talked about, uh, it seems to be uh, less of a concern as you look in more detail at the issues. Now let's talk about some of the other remdesivir trials to, uh, to put them into context. The first trial to actually have any data published, the first placebo control trial, was one that was conducted in China uh, that was slated to have over 600 patients. And 
because the Chinese did such a good job of getting control of their epidemic, uh, the study was stopped uh, before it was fully enrolled because there were no more patients to randomize. The time the study was stopped, they'd only uh, been able to enroll in this two-to-one drug-to-placebo study, 80 people in the placebo group, 160 in the remdesivir group. To make a long story short, um, the study was underpowered to have any conclusion uh, and uh, was um, uh, widely reported as showing no benefit, but in fact, uh, the report should have been the study was stopped uh, before benefit could be judged because uh, it was insufficiently powered. In fact, if you look in this study at people who entered the trial with less than 10 days of symptoms compared to those with more than 10 days of symptoms, there was a trend uh, in terms of a benefit uh, for those who uh, entered the trial earlier than those who were more advanced at the time they entered the study. In a final remdesivir study, I'll say a few words about uh, an attempt was made to uh, look at duration of therapy. This was an open-label study uh, done uh, in patients with severe COVID-19 disease randomized to receive either five or ten days of remdesivir. Uh, there was an imbalance at entry. Uh, the patients who uh, happened to be enrolled on the 10-day arm were a bit sicker at entry, but as you can see, clinical imp improvement of more than two points on the ordinal scale occurred in 64% of people in the five-day group and 54% uh, in the 10-day group. Uh, in other words, there was no clear benefit in treating these patients for a longer period of time. Uh, having said that, we do know that in autopsy studies uh, in people with uh, severe uh, COVID who have um, who die of respiratory failure, you can sometimes see evidence of ongoing viral replication at the time of death. Uh, and so uh, as we begin to use more dexamethasone or other immunosuppressing agents to try to deal with the um, uh, cytokine storm that drives this disease in some patients, uh, I think it makes sense to... Uh, be willing to treat patients for at least 10 days with remdesivir uh, in uh, patients who require immunomodulatory agents. Subsequent studies, I'm sure, will tell us a lot more about when the best time to start therapy uh, with remdesivir it might be, and also uh, provide more rigorous information about uh, length of therapy. Now let's uh, shift gears and talk a bit about immunomodulatory agents uh, that are now being used uh, in an effort to try to inhibit the cytokine storm that we see in late-stage disease. Multiple approaches are underway in terms of clinical trials. I'm not going to talk about all of the uh, studies that are ongoing, except to say that um, we'll be hearing, I think, about some of the IL-6 blockade studies with tocilizumab soon. Uh, there are a number of studies with genus-associated kinase, JAK inhibitors that are underway. Uh, and uh, as these clinical trials uh, mature, uh, I think we'll learn a lot about whether these more specific forms of, of immunosuppression are beneficial. There's been quite a bit of enthusiasm and excitement over the last 10 days about a recently completed study uh, with, um, uh, with uh, dexamethasone that was uh, announced uh, in a uh, press conference on the basis of uh, a, a large a uh, pragmatic trial carried out in England known as the recovery trial. The excitement about dexamethasone began about two weeks ago with the press conference which was held at Oxford University uh, in which the investigators described the results of the dexamethasone randomization within the large pragmatic trial known as the recovery trial. 
This large trial involved over 170 National Health Service hospitals. Physicians could enroll individual patients in this trial, and at the physician's request uh, and the patient's agreement, they could be randomized to receive one of several different types of interventions, uh, including dexamethasone, uh, lopinavir, tonavir, uh, hydroxychloroquine, and so forth. When the dexamethasone arm was uh, looked at uh, about uh, three weeks ago and data were crunched, it turns out those who have been randomized to receive uh, dexamethasone uh, had a survival benefit at the primary endpoint of 28 days, uh, which was the pre-specified uh, mortality endpoint in the study. The study uh, featured a two-to-one randomization with web-based case report forms, Minimal data was collected, mainly uh, demographics, level of respiratory support at entry, uh, what comorbidities patients might have had, and what treatments were available at a given site. Uh, patients were then followed up at 28 days just to find out about adherence to the allocated treatment, uh, how long they'd received that treatment, uh, whether they were on a respirator or receiving renal, uh, uh, renal dialysis support, and whether or not they were alive. And the primary endpoint was 28-day survival. Secondary incomes included things such as uh, time to discharge, receipt of mechanical ventilation, and so forth. The primary results from this study are shown on this slide. You can see that the 28-day mortality in the uh, arm receiving dexamethasone was 21.6% compared to 24.6% in the usual care arm. Uh, with a relative mortality rate of 0.83 in those receiving dexamethasone. There were also benefits in terms of hospital discharge uh, and receipt of, of uh, mechanical ventilation or death as a, as a combined endpoint. Now, but looking at some of the uh, subgroups in this study, you can see that the people who benefited the most from dexamethasone therapy were those who were already intubated at the time of randomization. People in the uh, next to the uh, most right-hand panel, those who received an oxygen alone, were ones who uh, benefited as well. But as you go to healthier patients, uh, just one panel to the left with no oxygen at the time of no oxygen requirements at the time of randomization, no benefit was seen. Uh, now, to put this into perspective with some of the other trials, one of the things that uh, uh, one has to look at, if you try to match these studies with all the caveats of matching across clinical trials, those who were uh, not receiving oxygen at uh, enrollment, uh, whether they received uh, remdesivir or placebo, the mortality rate in the um, uh, original remdesivir study I showed you was only about half that in the, in the, um, in the uh, uh, recovery study uh, the, uh, looking at uh, dexamethasone. Uh, and you can see that when you look at those who were uh, on ventilators at the time of entry, mortality rate, again, was twice as high in the recovery group um, on controls than those uh, receiving either remdesivir or placebo, the remdesivir study. So what really is, is a bit curious about this study, uh, one of the curious things, is that the mortality rate was really quite high. It may have reflected comorbidity because many of these patients did have comorbid conditions, but it's something we'll have to watch uh, as we... Uh, learn more about dexamethasone going forward. At this point in um, the um, uh, uh, course of our knowledge development, there is a divided opinion. Some pulmonologists think that every patient um, uh, who walks into the uh, ICU uh, or 
uh, I should say, who comes into the ICU should be treated with um, dexamethasone. Others think that it should be reserved for uh, those who are on mechanical ventilation, and others aren't yet convinced by this. Uh, so I think it will take some time to reach consensus. Now let's turn our attention to vaccine development. Uh, vaccine development is off to a rapid start in this uh, disease, as well it should be, uh, with multiple uh, phase one, two, and now phase three clinical trials already underway. Vaccinated. Uh, on the good side, there are uh, all kinds of uh, vaccine prospects out there. Uh, there are protein-based vaccines, there are uh, messenger RNA-based vaccines, DNA vaccines, uh, viral vectors that replicate attenuated viruses, chimeric viruses, um, and in animal models, uh, most of these have been shown to generate some form of coronavirus-specific immunity. And in some clinical trials that have gotten to phase two, uh, immunogenicity has been seen. The challenges are we don't know what aspects of immunity are critical uh, to demonstrating, uh, to protecting people from natural infection. Uh, we think that uh, neutralizing antibodies may be beneficial, but we'll have to see that when we start looking at vaccine trials in humans to see what correlates of immunity there are. Uh, the thing that is of most concern, however, to me, is that we don't know how durable vaccine immunity will be uh, because vaccine immunity in animal studies with coronavirus vaccines hasn't lasted long, and natural immunity to coronavirus infection wanes very quickly. And we also are concerned that those who are most of a need of vaccine, the older patient population, will be the ones who uh, will see a less vigorous immune response. That's certainly been seen in animal uh, models, and they may see the more uh, rapid loss of immunity. Uh, so we may have a particular uh, trouble protecting those who need uh, vaccine protection of the most. To make a couple of these points, uh, this is a uh, study that um, uh, was published in Nature Medicine earlier this month and looks at uh, patients who come into the hospital, uh, who come into, uh, 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 to came into the study either being asymptomatic in blue or symptomatic in orange. And the point I want to make here is that when you look at uh, antibody levels, uh, those who are um, uh, symptomatic uh, are more likely, this is a log scale, uh, are more likely to have higher levels of immunity um, in, uh, than those who are asymptomatic. And the reason that seems counterintuitive because you think those who got better uh, would have better immunity, but what this tells you is that those who have been sick for a longer period of time and have seen a lot of antigen have time to make vigorous immune responses. And therefore the amount of immunity is proportionate to the amount of exposure you have to SARS coronavirus antigen. You can imagine that someone who's been asymptomatic and has been has been seeing antigen for two weeks compared to someone who gets a little bit of vaccine in the arm, it's not clear where this immunity is going to be in terms of relative amounts of immunogenicity that is seen. Uh, this is from the same study, and this shows you that over the course of four to eight weeks, uh, that uh, even again, looking at this log scale, immunity begins to wane, uh, both uh, ELISA-based antibodies and neutralization antibodies, very consistent with other uh, uh, coronavirus experiences. And if you begin to extrapolate and wonder how long immunity will last, this may be the reason we see coronavirus outbreaks with traditional coronaviruses coming back to human population every three or four years. The only um, phase two study published in a peer-reviewed journal has been the um, uh, CanSino study, a very nicely done study using a, an adenovirus vector-based vaccine uh, this looks like a complicated slide, but it really isn't. Uh, these are people who are 
uh, vaccinated, and this is just looking at their uh, their uh, uh, T cell immunity, looking at interferon gamma producing cells. Uh, those uh, pre-vaccination receiving a low dose, a mid dose, and a high dose, showing that there's a dose-related induction of uh, antigen-specific interferon gamma producing cells. But only 14 days later, all of these are beginning to wane, again, on a, this logarithmic scale. And the same thing is true of neutralizing antibody titers. Uh, we get antibody titers, dose-related uh, um, findings up to a certain level, and then again decay over time. So we'll have to watch very carefully at longevity of vaccine responses as we go forward. So let me stop here and just uh, stop with uh, these conclusions that... Uh, uh, we are beginning to see some glimmers of hope with uh, antiviral therapeutics. Uh, remdesivir showed a positive signal in uh, the study that uh, I showed you. It is by no means a panacea, uh, but it is something that uh, gives us uh, uh, more reason to push the antiviral agenda because we know that if we can uh, 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 more effectively and earlier in the disease process, uh, we hope that we can show that we can benefit patients even more effectively. Uh, there is evidence that dexamethasone improves survival in people requiring oxygen or her own mechanical ventilation, and many vaccines are under active development. Now, as we watch this epidemic spin out of control in the U.S., we obviously have to get on it uh, uh, with this um, this um, more effective um, messaging about staying home and trying to get the epidemic back under control. Uh, but I, I and you know, as I, as I think I've told you, I'm quite pessimistic about a quick fix with a vaccine. The, of a long and winding road for us, uh, but I do think that uh, uh, there are ways out of this that uh, will get us to a point that we can operate uh, much more freely than we are now. I think that there's very good evidence that masking and social distancing, uh, active contact tracing uh, can get this epidemic uh, to a point that we can begin to do more than we are already. We've seen that in Europe. We've seen that in China. Everywhere that it's been done effectively, we need to do it here. If we don't have a vaccine, uh, where will we be? Well, we may be in the same uh, position where uh, we are with HIV. Remember, we were promised an AIDS vaccine in 1984. We're still waiting, but we've done very well with drugs. And if we develop drugs that are oral, uh, that can be given uh, uh, with uh, little toxicity and be given to people who are at risk for or beginning to show evidence of more progressive disease, we may make this a disease that we can live with uh, while we uh, go about our business uh, and try to develop uh, vaccines and other approaches that are more permanent. Thanks very much for your attention, and I look forward to um, talking to you uh, further uh, and uh, to um, confronting this epidemic together.